Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Han Talks First, a first live show in what seems like forever, uh, like six months or something like that. So forgive me if I'm a little rusty, but we're going to give it a shot because it is we're back with the Mando After Show. Mandalorian season three, episode one dropped yesterday. It was pretty good. I had a couple issues, which we'll talk about here and there. But overall, it was good to be back in that world. It was kind of back to form. It felt like we never left as far as the tone and the style and the pacing of it all. And Rick Famuyiwa was the director of this episode. It was The Apostate, which of course is referring to The Mandalorian, and his place in his clan at the moment and how they view him and what he has to do to redeem himself and get back in, in good spirits with them. And then, of course, Bo-Katan was here. So it's spoiler heavy. So we're going to talk all about it today. So if you haven't watched it, probably want to watch it before you listen to this episode. But we're going to get deep. We're going to get real deep. And freaking space whales. Space whales, the purgle, the purgle are back. And it made me so happy about that. And people who watch Rebels probably really got a hit out of that too. So welcome back, everybody. And if you have any comments, since we're doing it live again, feel free to throw it in there. I'll try and address everyone that I can. And if you're watching this on the playback, leave a comment, give it a like, subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And let's just get into it. I'm Han, and this is Han Talks First. <laughs> Who talks first? You talk first. I talk first. So let me start off by addressing the intro of this episode. The not the prologue, but the the moment before the little stinger, the Lucasfilm logo that they have for Disney Plus shows. I really loved the tone it said. It was very eerie, the music behind it. And then of course you had the forging blacksmith hammering that you heard. And that, of course, was referring to the armorer who made the first appearance on screen. I really liked the tone they set. You know, it, it wasn't that what they did for the last two seasons with the Lucasfilm logo and all the little Star Wars characters. It made it feel like this season was going to get very emotional and maybe a little bit darker, which I'm totally down for. So before we jump into the actual plot and story that's going to take place, I want to talk about the director of this episode, Rick Famuyiwa, who has directed episodes in the past of season one and two. But now, not only is he a director for season three, but he is an executive producer. So he's working equally right alongside Dave Filoni and Jon Favreau, shepherding the entire show now. And that's very interesting. So, you know, he got a promotion, which is kind of nice. He's, he seems like a really nice guy in interviews and stuff like that. And I will say, while his episode last season, uh, episode seven in season two, I thought was the worst episode of Mandalorian I had probably ever seen, he totally stepped it up this season. He did a great job with getting the best emotions from the characters and establishing a new pace and the, revisiting the tone that we had in the past two seasons. I thought he did a great job. And it really made me happy because I did not like his episode last season it was the penultimate right before the finale regardless he did a good job i do have one complaint about the direction of this episode and that was the pacing you know we see mandalorian walking around a lot we see him flying around a lot and especially once he got to bo katan's castle on um whatever that planet was called calavara i believe but once we get into that part of the plot, I'll, I'll address why. But there was just a lot of exposition scenes in 
this episode, which I thought could have been cut down a little bit. But then again, if it was cut down a little bit, this episode would have been 25 minutes long and that would be even more depressing. You know, something that really I have not liked about the series overall is you never know how long the episodes are going to be. And that's the problem with streaming in general. You know, without you take the credits aside and you take the opener aside and the the little recap aside. This episode was really like 30 minutes long, which, you know, it's kind of standard. There's nothing wrong with it. But, you know, I just it, I want longer episodes. I want to be in the galaxy a little bit longer every week. But part of that is me just being greedy. Jumping into the, the little recap they did. So we all know that part, a big, very significant part of Mandalorian and Grogu's storyline was addressed in the book of Boba Fett. Last week, we talked about, will audiences be confused? Will they be able to recap it in a way that will fill them in on everything that they've missed? And while there were some lines of dialogue and exposition dialogue that was given between characters to kind of suggest what had happened, I do feel like people that didn't watch it might be a little bit confused on why Grogu is back so soon. And that's the issue, too. This feels like it takes place almost immediately after the events of Book of Boba Fett. However, one thing they don't address is where we are in the timeline right now. So John Favreau at the premiere was speaking to a reporter and he asked, you know, when does this take place in the whole timeline of it all? And John Favreau said it's actually a year and a half to two years that Grogu had been training with Luke. That blew my mind, and that totally changed my perspective of the episode. And I found that out after watching this episode, which totally made me reevaluate what I watched. And I think they should have addressed that in the opening, maybe in a recap. What I thought they were going to do was do a recap similar to that of Obi-Wan Kenobi. If you remember that opening, before the show started, they did a whole recap of episodes one through three with Obi-Wan and Anakin's story. And it was very well done. It was one of the best recaps I had seen in any TV show. And it really covered all the bases. And I thought they would show Luke and Grogu training a little bit beforehand. So I'm curious for the people that have not watched Boba Fett. You know, if one of you are listening or watching this episode today, let me know what you thought. You, did you feel lost at all? Was it confusing? Or are you just, you know, don't care. You're just happy he's back. So let me know. So let's jump into the actual storyline here. So it, it begins with this flashback. And at first, I'll be honest with you, I thought it was in real time. I thought what was happening was we were telling the story of a young Din Djarin first receiving his helmet by the children of the Watch or this clan of Mandalorians. And they totally sideswiped. And it was actually a new child receiving his helmet. And the Mandalorian makes his appearance for the first time, rescuing them all. After Lake Placid, the giant alligator from Lake Placid shows up. I don't know if it's an alligator or like a snapping turtle or or just a mutated lizard, Godzilla, whatever you want to call it, that thing showed up. And this is kind of, this whole opening scene kind of sets what the formula of the show is. The beginning of every season starts off as a monster flick. <laughs> in, the, in the first one, we had that weird walrus thing that jumped up from the water. In season two, we had the crate dragon who jumped up from the sand water. And now we have a different animal jumping up from the water. It's kind of weird how there's that, those parallels there. 
George Lucas is probably creaming his jeans right now because it's like poetry. It rhymes. But it's an interesting format that they're using here that each each opener is almost like a creature feature. I love it. I absolutely love it. Season two, we had a lot of those with the giant spy ice spider and the crate dragon. So this type of stuff I really love. But it does make me question why the hell were they having this little ceremony on this beach? You would think they would know that it's infested with giant alligator crocodile Godzillas in the water, but I guess not. And another thing about it was they didn't seem too tactical in their defenses against this creature. That is, of course, until Mando himself shows up. It was, it was a really cool intro, I, I will say. You know, I, I thought it would have been a little bit more bombastic, but once he made his appearance and then little Grogu pops up, it was really nice. It felt good to see them again. I kind of wish I had seen this with a crowd of people or a group of fans, but most importantly, on a big screen. There's just something that still bothers me to this day that I'm watching good Star Wars content on a little tiny screen, you know? Or at least to my availability, the biggest one that I have. It's just, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, it's Star Wars TV. I think I'm still just, I'm fiending for a film. You know, it's been four years since we had a film. And I'm just eager to get one. So the, the opening was good. And then it's jumped into him having the conversation with the armorer. Kind of recapping through dialogue all the exposition that was lost in between the two seasons. Basically saying, hey, you got to go to Mandalore and you have to bathe in the living waters on the mines of Mandalore in, in order to be redeemed. And then we'll let you back into the club, buddy. That's all you got to do. You got to go take a little bath, a little salt bath, you know. But the problem is Mandalore appears, according to this little crystal that he found, to the surface of Mandalore seems to be crystallized by fusion race. And it's it's a poisoned planet at this point. And this, of course, is due to the aftermath of all the wars and the uh, the mining that's been going on from the Empire. So the planet seems to be kind of destroyed. Who knows? But he's got to go there. So there we established what this season is going to be about. You know, I've said before on seasons one and season two, The Mandalorian is the best video game story that does not have a video game. Where is The Mandalorian video game? It's It's essentially that. I mean, every single episode is a subplot relating to an overall giant narrative. You know, you you go to the person, the admin that's going to give you your job. You do that job, and then it leads you to your next job. I mean, why there isn't a Mandalorian video game? I have no idea. I will say the Mandalorian in the Star Wars Skywalker Lego Saga. I totally miss said that. He's actually pretty cool in that, and you get little baby Yoda with him too. But. That's an aside. So anyway, we've established what the plot is. And look how cute Grogu is. He's just so stinking cute, that little goop. And then once they leave, we see in hyperspace, for the first time in live action, the Purgles. This made me extremely happy. And I can't tell you how many thoughts went through my head as soon as I saw this space whale flying up next to their ship. Because it made me think, oh my God, Ezra's coming back. Like that's totally some kind of foreshadowing to something major that's going to happen, whether it's a giant war, similar to the ending of Rebel Season 4, how the Purgle came and kind of saved the day. But it's you know incredibly significant that they can travel through hyperspace so they can get to places a lot quicker. And Ezra and Thrawn both escaped on Purgles, or not escaped, you know what I mean, at the end of Rebels. So it, this is kind of key. 
And I don't know, it's, there's a beauty about it. There's some kind of serenity about seeing a, a whale just swimming around in space like this. Although this, this photograph here looks a little bit more like a squid. However, I'm pumped. I can't wait to see it live action. That really made me happy. And uh, for anyone who watched Rebels, it probably made you happy too. I think that was the one moment in this episode that I audibly gasped <laughs> by myself while viewing this. But I think this totally tells us, the viewer, Ezra, Thrawn, they're coming back. And we know they're coming back, but th this indicates maybe a little bit sooner than we expect. Although it probably still is just going to be in Ahsoka. You know, I guess we'll see. So after this, we get to Navarro. Navarro is back and we get to see it again, but this time it looks significantly different than it did when we last saw it. And this again, you know, on my first viewing, when I didn't know that there was a two year time gap since they'd last been there, I was like, how the hell did they get their city fixed up like this so quickly? It no longer looks desolate and strifing, but now it looks like a thriving, you know, civilized, you know, area to live. And of course, Grief shows up. He's the new high magistrate. So he's in charge here. He's no longer doing, you know, the dirty work with bounty hunters and he's, He's revamped the town. He's, he's upgraded it. You know, the bars are now schools for children to learn. So it's a civilized town, you know, and he wants to be, what did he say? He wants to be the, the capital for some kind of mining. I forgot what it was, but anyway, he has, he has a plan. He's a business plan <laughs> and he's going to, he's going to follow it through. And then we also see the statue of IG 11, which was, it was nice to see. However, I'm not really too sure why they had to bring him back because um, he died twice, I think. I, I don't know. that. It, I can live with it. You know, it, it was really cool once Din worked on him and he started crawling around like a little horror film. That was pretty cool. Getting into the genre bending of the whole situation. So, and it makes sense, I know, because that's the only droid that Din has ever trusted. And going to the Mines of Mandalore, we saw in the recap IG-11 was able to walk through lava, so he's probably able to withstand other environmental territories that could be dangerous to a human or a Mandalorian like Din. So it makes sense, but it was pretty good. Following that, he has to get a part to fix him, and he goes to the little Babu Fricks. I forgot what their species are called, but we saw them in the trailer, so it, it was cool to see them back in action. And one thing that I really loved about seeing these creatures here and this whole scene between Grogu and the little Babu Fricks and Mando is the puppeteering. The puppeteering makes a huge difference in Star Wars films. And I know there's some discrepancy, there's some, you know, controversy, very small bit that some people prefer CGI, some people prefer practical effects. I think when it comes to the creature effects, for them to be puppets, it adds a charm to the style and it has that Jim Henson feel a whimsical feel. It brings out the inner child, you know, it, it's not, not believable. And I love it. It really makes a difference. And then of course, when the little, the little Babu Fricks are working on IG 11, one of them <laughs> out of nowhere gets sexually assaulted by Grogu. I'm kidding. It was a hug. It was cute, but it was a little weird at some points. Look, there was a lot of really cute Grogu moments in this that I, it, it was really cute. You know, I, I'm, I'm very curious what his story is going to be. 
like what is what is his involvement what is his arc going to be now that essentially he was returned to luke didn't want to go that way wants to be with din we saw din kind of training him in the cockpit a little bit telling him about piloting so and obviously saying you know if you want to be a mandalorian you have to learn all this stuff so he's probably training to be a mandalorian one day and we'll probably get to see grogu in little mandalorian armor which would be kind of cool and that opens up the whole mythos aspect of it because do the mandalorian people let in other races in the universe to be part of their what is it called zealot so we'll have to wait and see that's that's what's interesting to me is is building on the lore and expanding it because so far we've only seen humanoids as mandalorians so if grogu is going to be a mandalorian he might be the first we'll have to see and force sensitive at that so relating back to the whole, the whole history of Mandalore. So after they go see IG-11, he, he has to bring him a certain part, again, back to the whole video game styling of it all. And he goes flying, and then he gets bombarded by the pirates that tried to get a drink at the school on Navarro. I, I hate this guy. I don't, I don't hate his look or anything. I just I don't like the character he's. He really annoys me. And one thing that bothered me was when Grief was confronting him on Navarro and Mando, Mando and Grief killed all his men but left him alone. What? Why? If you're going to kill all those people, why not just kill the leader? Because now he's going to go out and he's going to find more. Anyway, and we, we saw it. He came back with a couple ships and then turned the corner. And sure enough, there was a, a massive freight in the middle of the space with um, shepherded by... Uh, Davy Jones from Pirates of the Caribbean. I love, again, back to the practical characters, uh, practical effects. This was really cool to see, although it took me out for a very small second because I thought it was like a swamp thing. But I kept thinking Davy Jones from <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean. Anyway, they're going to play it. This was very Dave Filoni, the whole Pirates aspect of it all. It reminded me so much of Rebels, so much of Clone Wars. And the voice was very familiar to me. I'm almost curious if he was an old actor from one of those series. So uh, uh, anyway, they're going to come back. They're going to play in a big part. I can't wait to see how that ties in. Seeing Bo-Katan's castle on Kalavara. Is that what the planet is called? Kalavara was really cool to see. And this again was a total. It just throws you into back at the times of the Clone Wars and Rebels. I mean, it looked it looked great. There was, that's another thing. There's parts about the Mandalorian now in season three. They've totally adapted to the, the volume, the stage in which they film these things on. Because I no longer feel like it's in an enclosed stage or stage-bound space. It now feels a little bit grander in scope as far as the scale of these places where they are. They're finally figuring out how to shoot these things on camera that make it feel a little bit more realistic and a little bit more grounded, which I really enjoy. And Bo-Katan's castle on Calavara was one of those things. But what was really interesting to me was how long was she sitting there in that position? <laughs> how long was she just chilling there with her foot up? Because she does not look comfortable. I almost wonder if she was like, you know, just chilling on the beach and she saw his ship flying up and she was like, oh, shit, and runs upstairs, runs down the hallway and goes and sits in the chair to act cool when really she's 
terribly uncomfortable. <laughs> I mean, look at her face. She was totally, she's having back problems in this chair. But she said some interesting things that I wasn't expecting. You know, she asked Din if he still had the Darksaber. And he, of course, said, yeah, I have it. And she did nothing to try and reclaim it. I thought for sure she would have challenged him. You know, get the Darksaber back, get her people back because of that, and then go and, you know, claim her spot to ruling the Mandalore. But that didn't happen. So obviously there's something about Bo's character that has happened in the past two years since they last met that has changed the way she views this. And I don't know what that is exactly. But another thing that is very fascinating about the two different ideologies of Mandalorian people, Bo's people and Din's people, is they obviously have very different ideals, convictions, temperaments, as far as how they you know, practice their religion. And they really disagree with the other ones. And one, and I find it kind of hypocritical that Bo-Katan was saying, you know, you're with the children of the, you're a child of the watch. And, you know, you act this way, you don't remove your helmet. But she kind of thinks the same way when it comes to the Darksaber. That the Darksaber, once you have it, you rule. Which doesn't really make a good leader if you think about it. It's kind of like Black Panther. If any of you remember in Black Panther, the person, the king who rules becomes king by challenging the old king to a, a hand combat, <laughs> a duel. And even if you don't have any leadership qualities at all, if you are able to fight to the death and win, you're the king. Those types of practices, those ancient practices, they're archaic they're um primal it doesn't really make sense so Bo-Katan is being a little hypocritical to me when she says I need the dark sable to be able to rule like no you're a great leader we've seen it in the clone wars and in rebels you are a great leader you don't need the saber to be able to do that and you should be able to convince your people of the same so there's an interesting story to be told there that I am not sure where it's going to go but Katie Sackoff herself has been doing a tons of interviews and she said that there is something that is keeping her from being able to challenge Din for the Darksaber. And she said it will be revealed in this episode. Another thing she revealed is she has a very significant role in this season, which I, I love. You know, I love Katie Sackhoff. I loved her in that film she did. It was a horror movie. I can't remember. Doesn't matter. Anyway, it's pretty great. I can't wait to see it. And going back to the scene with the castle and Calavara, you know, he lands on the docking bay, he walks inside, and then he gets in the hallway and he walks down the hallway. And all of this walking takes a lot of time. And I get it. It's beautiful. It's shot well. They're adapting to the volume much better than they had in previous seasons. But all these exposition shots take up a lot of time. And there's I'm going to sound like such a douche when I say this. There's a rule in filmmaking where it's like you always have to have your characters going somewhere, but sometimes it's best just to start a scene right in the middle of the action. It might just be my personal preference, but this episode had a lot of walking around and I get it. That's the Mandalorian. That's the Western aspect of it all. The spaghetti Italian Westerns of the sixties and seventies, and it works. I mean, his walk is cool and all, but I don't know. I think it could have just been, 
we could have jumped to the the plot a little bit faster to me anyway so that is pretty much the show for this episode i i loved it uh i can't i've i've heard from people who went to the premiere which is right down the street for me actually that episode two is really good and it's much better not to say this episode's bad but and luckily we haven't heard any spoilers or anything but apparently there is some kind of reveal in episode two that will tell the audiences what this major storyline is going to indicate and there's some big appearances or something anyway people have said it's it's pretty good i think the standout for me was freaking space whales pergles ezra's coming back baby and i can't wait the other thing that i forgot to mention is the one aspect of this episode that i have noticed a massive improvement on from other seasons is the music I love Ludwig van Göransson. I think he's a great composer. He's he's got he doesn't have a John Williams style to him. He ha, he but he does have that melodic um, style to him, and he really understands harmony and part writing when it comes to music. For those of you that don't know, I'm a musician myself. And one thing that bothered me about season one and the earlier parts of season two was the music didn't really seem fully realized. It was very experimental at times. I mean, you can look at the Dark Troopers scene itself. It was electronic. It was EDM mixed with classical, which was really cool. But it it wasn't as it didn't flow with the rest of the tracks as nicely as I, I wanted it to. And then it wasn't until the end of season two where it, it felt like, OK, this is what he was building to. This was what he was trying to accomplish with the music. And it worked. And this episode, the music was fantastic. It, it almost didn't sound like Ludwig's music. That's not, a, that's not a knock at him at all. But there was something special about how it flowed with the space shots and the action scenes. And then the subtlety of the eeriness at the very beginning of this episode, it was pretty good. And I love how he styles it with using electronic synth pads mixed with a little bit of classicism and, and like chamber orchestrations. I, I, it, it was so much better. And I, I love his music. I can't wait to see what he does next. Just for the hell of it, I'm going to take a look at the comments here and see who's here. Max is here. Wow. I haven't seen or heard from Max in a really long time. What's up, buddy? It's good to see you. I'm just going to um, take a look at what you had to say here. I think the first episode was good, but nothing special. And for me, the first two seasons had better first episodes i think okay so i i totally i see what you're saying that's actually a good question to bring up so for me i did not like the first episode of season one it wasn't for me you know it was dave filoni's first time ever directing live action so i get it it was a little bit amateur and they were also experimenting with this new tech with the volume and trying to figure out how it all works so i understand it was experimental in that way. It was avant-garde. And they were trying to establish this Western tone. So it was different. It was a little different. But for me, it wasn't enough for me to be extremely hyped about the rest of the series. And then I grew to love it, of course. But season two is actually my favorite opener to a season with the crate Dragon. Because for the longest time, I'd always envisioned in my head what that would look like live and you know how, how big it would be. Because ever since A New Hope, when you see its skeleton remains, which was a baby dragon, 
a baby crate dragon. I've always just, I've been fascinated by that ever since I first saw A New Hope uh, many years ago. So that was really special to me. And I thought the CGI was fantastic. And for the first time ever in The Mandalorian, they did something special with the way it was shot. And usually it's very wide. And you'll notice your screen has like black bars at the top and the bottom. So it's a 16 by 9 ratio, which is usually meant for Westerns. And it, it makes it get a sense of larger landscapes. And what this episode did of season two was once the crate dragon started making its appearance, you'll notice it's very subtle, but the screen starts to enlarge vertically and the black bars disappear and it goes into full screen. I think it's called scope or flat. It's one of those two. I forget the terminology. And so it makes it feel even bigger. And then when you go to the close-ups on the crate dragon, it adds a different tone and it, that was the first time they ever did it in the show. And it, it was really, it made a huge difference. And I don't think many people noticed that. But this, anyway, season three, episode one, is my second favorite um, opener to a season. But uh, thanks for sending that in, man. Uh, he also says, John said it real time was two years since Mando season two. Yes. Yeah, we talked about that. So I wish they had kind of addressed it in the show or put it in a recap or right before it starts, it says like, you know, two years later or whatever. Um, oh, here we go. The score was made by Joseph Shirley, the same guy who did it for the book of Boba Fett. Ludwig Gorenson just made the main theme in Boba Fett. Um, so Ludwig did not do the score for this season, apparently. That's news to me. Well, whoever this Joseph Shirley guy is, he did a good job. Anyway, that's pretty much the show for today, everybody. Thank you for so much for joining me. I will say, you know, one of the things that's special about this show is the stories that are being told per episode is they're very small scale stories. They're, they're simple stories. You know, go to this planet, get this part so you can fix IG-11. Simple. And then, of course, there's the overall arc, which is trying to, you know, go back to Mandalore all that kind of stuff. But each individual story is simple. It's small scale. And what makes it feel so grand and in place of the universe is the scope of it, the world building, the characters, the races, all that kind of stuff. So they're able to balance that really well. And that's what makes the show work for me. So it's, it's all of these different facets working in tandem and being allocated correctly that really makes the show shine. So yeah, that's my thoughts on episode one. We'll do episode two next week. And thank you so much for joining me today. Leave a comment down below what you thought of today's episode. I respond to everybody. Give this video a like. Check out the audio. We have we are podcast everywhere. Podcasts can be found, so go check that out. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, um, Amazon, everywhere. Literally everywhere. So go check it out. And subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. Um, it was fun. Can't wait for next week. I'm Han, and you just listen to Han Talks First. Peace. So who talks first? You talk first. I talk first.